Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 2023 saw some of the biggest drops in cable TV subscriptions in a single quarter, according to the Washington Post. And the industry that's inspiring all that cord cutting, the streaming industry, is actually built on the same business model that cable built decades ago, says Catherine Kramer Brownell, who writes about how paying for TV subscriptions came to be, and a whole lot more in her book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. This hour, we'll look at the role of cable TV in shaping not only our viewing habits, but also our fragmented culture, and whether the rise of streaming will mean more of the same. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Streaming services may be gobbling up cable subscriptions, but the demand for personalized programming that cable TV created and fueled is still alive and well, and at the core of streaming success— This hour, we look back at the rise of cable television and the influence it's had, not only on our viewing habits or new industries like streaming, but also on our culture and politics. Catherine Kramer Brownell is Associate Professor of History at Purdue University, and she's the author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America, From Watergate to Fox News. And we want to hear from you. What do you remember about cable TV's rise, your first HBO (laughs) subscription? Do you think more viewing options has been better or worse for our country and culture? Or have you recently cut the cable cord? Professor Kramer Brownell, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. Before we map the history of cable television, I do want to take a moment to talk about where we are now with TV research firms finding that the percent of households with a cable or satellite TV subscription has dropped from 70% in 2016 to about 40% now. Can we pretty much attribute all of that to streaming? Absolutely. We have more options than ever before in terms of what viewers can get through their phones, through their tablets. There's a range of different services. It's expanded dramatically. And many people feel that they no longer need cable television to get the entertainment and sports and news that they want in their daily lives. Yeah. And a listener on Discord writes, my household is streaming only, but due to our TV configuration, I'm not even sure how to access the free network TV channels. We used to subscribe to multiple streaming services, but have cut back to only one service due to 
costs. I end up missing out on a lot of shows I would want to watch. And so in some ways, uh, streaming is getting also as it's becoming more robust with subscribers. It's also becoming more complex to navigate, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are frustrated because they used to be able to turn on their TV and watch the World Series or watch their college football team. And now they have to struggle to find out where and how they can actually watch their favorite sports team. So I think you see that frustration mount, especially when it comes to a lot of sporting activities. But interestingly, as you point out, streaming's business model of monthly subscriptions for content that can like tap into niche interests, even if they may be hard to <laughs> locate, that was Cable's model, just with different technology. Can you talk about some of the similarities in, in how both Cable and streaming you know, have marketed themselves? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's something that cable does and truly transforms the television landscape and and the landscape more broadly of politics and news and sports and entertainment is that it introduces this idea that viewers can get a more personalized experience, that you go from the shift of broadcasting, which when you think it's broadcasting, you're trying to get the largest audience possible to narrow casting. And cable introduces this concept of narrow casting that you can uh, appeal to a very a smaller, more niche demographic um, and kind of cultivate more loyalty uh, because of interests that are different, not shared with the masses. And as you point out in your book with massive impacts on our country and culture, I want to thank that listener on Discord for their comment and remind listeners that you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Post them on our social channels. We're on X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. Our phone number is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Have you cut the cord on cable? Are you nostalgic for cable? Um, tell us and tell Catherine Grimmer Brownell. I want to go back and look at the history of the rise of cable, which was so much more fascinating than I realized. First, Catherine, can you remind us what the landscape was basically like before the rise of cable? Can, can you talk about the big three? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so many people may not know this, uh, but cable actually emerges on the scene with television in the late 40s. And it became a way to expand the reach of broadcasting. So in the late 40s, in 1950s, you have broadcasting um, uh, television, where it's bringing um, uh, pictures uh, via TV sets into houses, millions of houses across the country. Due to FCC regulations, it allowed the uh, local stations, so local stations would get those signals from a national network. And and it allowed them to affiliate with one of three, eventually becomes three, networks in order to get higher programming or higher quality programming. But that meant that across the country, local stations were basically only giving you three options. If you turned on your TV, you were getting ABC, NBC, or CBS. And um, and so you would get those signals from one of your local stations, and there are only a few local stations in your area. Uh, and this is a, a monopoly that the big three had on the content of information that was going into the living rooms that people were consuming on their television. And again, it's by regulatory design. 
the FCC constructed this. Um, and there is an expectation that in exchange for this monopoly over the, the airwaves, that the networks would also advance the public interest through public affairs programming and educational programming. Uh, it's a very vaguely defined notion of what the public interest was, and that became very hotly debated as to in terms of how well they were actually serving the public interest. And as you were saying, cable essentially began in the 40s as people were trying to get these three broadcast networks into more remote areas or rural areas, since mm -hmm. a lot of it was concentrated in cities. You say that cable TV's entrepreneurs saw a business potential mainly in the 60s. What was that? Why? People weren't happy with the big three's offerings? Because I think we tend to romanticize that period as a time when people watch the same thing. So we had a shared culture and set of facts. Yes, nostalgia for this moment is very rampant today, but it's really misconstruing that the reality of that time. Uh, there is this consensus, this shared culture, but it's incredibly exclusionary. Uh, it is overwhelming, advancing the viewpoints of white, uh, straight men and on in uh, on the East Coast. Uh, and so that this is something that many people were frustrated by because it was so exclusionary. And this is this frustration is really across the political spectrum. And so because as a result, cable, which had originally, as you said, just expanded the reach of broadcasting, all of a sudden people start to think about, huh, maybe cable could be an alternative. Maybe because of the technology, it allowed for more more channels. Uh, initially, um, early uh, cable systems uh, could bring in those uh, the the broadcast the local broadcast stations, but they could also bring in distant signals. Um, and there was space for up to twelve or even thirteen uh, channels, and that was really exciting because it it promised that there could be other alternatives, um, and maybe cable operators could come up with their own programming, like the early weather station where it was just a camera that would look at weather tools. <laughs> but this is something different uh, than the regular fair. Yeah. I, actually, at the very beginning, though, I was struck by how unsuccessful it was and how hard even California fought against it, right? Wasn't there a state ballot initiative that basically outlawed subscription television, the whole idea of, of how to make cable profitable? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, there is a, a very well-known um, and well-accomplished NBC executive who who leaves NBC in the 1950s, and in he's he's thinking about creative approaches to television because he knows the limits of broadcast television, and so so he starts looking into pay TV and these cable operating systems um, and some of the experiments that were being launched to uh, to bring again a, a competition, an alternative uh, to broadcast not just expand its reach. And this and is Pat so, Weaver, right? Sigourney yes, Weaver's this dad? Is, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's Pat Weaver. Um, uh, and so Pat Weaver, he comes up with this idea of subscription television in, uh, in, in, in 1963, and he proposes it in Southern California. He strikes deals with baseball teams um, and comes up with educational programming. So again, he can offer something very different uh, than, than what would be offered through broadcasting. And, and it's really successful in terms of he gets subscribed, he, he, you know, gets investors, a lot of investors. Um, he, and then he's able to lay the wire, um, and, and get people hooked up and, and they're excited about these offers. 
offerings. However, broadcasters and especially movie the theater owners mobilize against it. They create such a scene, uh, uh, rally interest groups um, uh, across California and sound the horn of we need free TV. And so they really celebrate free TV. Um, of course, it's, you know, advertisers underwrote uh, broadcasting. Uh, and so, you know, they were saying, but it was free to access anyone who had a TV. Uh, but they're really, they're, they're, they're not talking about the advertising. Weaver is talking about the advertising. And Weaver reminds people that free TV is not free, that there's this cost to your time and this, this aggravation that people feel by all the constant hammering of all the commercials. And so so he's trying to play up the limitations, uh, both the, the not just in terms of the programming, but the economic limitations of quote unquote free free TV, and um, the free TV advocates are really celebrating that you know broadcasting gives uh, has this shared culture right that provides information for all sorts of demographics, um, and so they really warn about the economic uh, stratification that could come in if some people had access to TV and others did not because yeah. they had to pay for it. And yeah, California didn't have any of it for a while, but I understand that state ballot initiative that outlawed subscription television was ultimately found unconstitutional. We're coming up on a break, but but tell us the turning point um, in terms of an HBO broadcast, the Thrilla in Manila, <laughs> and why that was the turning point really quick. Yes, that was really significant, 1975. Um, and what that showed is that as we were just talking about, cable operators struggled to come up with really good uh, programming uh, that would really attract people to, to pay for TV. Um, so not only did they face these political and regulatory issues, they needed content that people wanted. The Thrilla in Manila gave it to them. <laughs> we're talking with Catherine Kramer Brownell about the rise of cable TV and what it tells us about where we are today as a Fragmented Society. We'll have more with her and with you after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the history of cable TV and its role in shaping our viewing habits, our fragmented culture, industries like streaming, and so on. We're talking about it with Catherine Kramer Brownell, who's Associate Professor of History at Purdue University and author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Her previous book is Showbiz Politics, Hollywood in American Political Life. And we want to hear from you listeners. What do you remember about cable? TV's rise. Do you have a fondness for the early days of cable? What are you nostalgic about? Do you worry about the impact the cable has had? Do you think maybe more viewing options that it brought have been worse for the country? Or maybe you like the personalized programming and you feel like it's been better for democracy? <laughs> Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Are you part of a household that ended your TV services and move to streaming only. How has that gone for you? The great industry now being replaced by another industry, but using the same cable model. Let me go to caller Debbie in Kensington. Debbie, thanks for calling. You're on. Oh, hi. I just had an interesting story. I lived in North Africa and Algeria from 1986 to 1992. Um, and at the time, cable TV or satellite TV was the big thing. And so what they would do is they would take buy a satellite for a huge apartment building, and then they would sell subscriptions to all the residents, and then suddenly they would have access to French TV. You know, the former French colonies, the most people spoke French, but it had a huge impact culturally because before that they had curated TV where they would actually edit out a kissing scene. You know, it was very, very strict, and suddenly they could see full frontal nudity in the French TV. So, um, And this was all in the the warm-up to the fundamentalism that happened in the, you know, early 90s, late yeah. 80s, so I thought it was well, interesting. Thanks, Debbie. It sort of underscores your point that you were making earlier, Catherine, about, you know, just how people want to remember cable, um, as, or, I'm sorry, want to remember the big three as this time when we had this shared culture, but the reality was that that culture was not showing a lot, not very diverse. And when we think about what cable TV proliferated, you talk about like, you know, BET, the black entertainment television or the daytime channel or MTV. (laughs) So there was a lot that proliferated from cable. Yes, there there are so many voices and perspectives that were excluded by the big three. And as I mentioned before, that's why it's something, you know, at a time of a lot of political divides in the late 1960s, 1970s, there's one thing that conservatives and feminists and civil rights activists, there's one thing that they could agree upon, and that was the need to diversify and decentralize uh, the the television landscape uh, because it was such a monopoly and it was so limiting in terms of its perspectives and cable offered that it also because uh cable productions were were not in you know these studios uh they were not necessarily as polished that meant that new other people could actually get into the producer room and they could write their own shows on public access for example um and experiment uh with different uh different types of programming as well Yeah, Emma tweets, imagine if the big three had been run by a diverse group of people from the start. I think it's fair to say all the culture issues of today are primarily caused by power wrongly held by a small group of narrowly focused white men. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Um, we talked before the break about how cable was finding its footing, HBO was finding its footing with sports and various other things, and that more and more investment and interest was happening in cable. You write about how it was helped along by the Nixon administration, but can you talk about why President Nixon specifically was so interested and invested in cable television? This is one of the really interesting things that I found in my research that I was not anticipating. I thought that cable really came onto the scene in the 1980s as a result of Reagan's uh, deregulatory agenda. Uh, But in fact, it's deeply rooted in some of the policy initiatives that began under Richard Nixon. Uh, Presidents before him, Lyndon Johnson is a great example, were very chummy with the broadcast industry. Lyndon Johnson's family had this broadcasting empire in um, in Texas. And so uh, they were invested in upholding the, the status quo and uh, this, this, uh, this network, uh, this, the monopoly of the big three that really helped bolster their political agendas in many capacities. It gave them millions and millions of television viewers when they wanted to make uh, a presidential address. Well, Nixon does not have a chummy relationship with the television networks. He sees them as an enemy. Uh, Out to get him personally, he sees them as biased and constantly trying to undermine his candidacy when he was on the campaign trail and then his agenda while in office. And so when some of his policy advisors uh, pitch in this idea of cable television, they say, you know, this could be a way to launch your war um, against network television and solve what they called the news problem. Um, and this is this this idea of the Nixon administration that, again, the news was biased and out to undermine Nixon and um, and his agenda. And so all of a sudden, this idea about cable as an alternative to broadcasting gained resonance. And he really started to invest and to push forward um, a variety of initiatives that kind of rethought this regulatory system upholding cable that really limited its reach. Um, in, in about the mid-1960s, there are regulatory um, um, requirements that are introduced that really limit where cable can operate. For example, it couldn't operate in the top 100 television markets. Um, a lot of this starts to change, and the conversation significantly around cable changes. New policy ideas are floated, and all of a sudden, uh, cable is celebrated for its ability, again, to decentralize the media landscape and solve that issue of liberal bias that Nixon so firmly believed in. Yeah, he didn't like PBS either, I understand. He was no <laughs> fan of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. <laughs> that was part of that war, absolutely. <laughs> um, so he's basically wooing the cable industry by, I think you say, dangling deregulation in front of them. And deregulation does happen, right? But can you talk about what some of the effects are as a result of deregulation, for example, on people's rates, how much people are paying for that content? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, deregulation un- happens slowly over the next decade. There are a lot of measures that are taken under Jimmy Carter's administration that are really significant and frequently overlooked. Uh, that um, And they're really taken by the FCC to pull off some of these regulations on where cable could operate and how they could. But it's really not until 1984 that you have a significant piece of legislation that is passed. And that's the 1984 Cable Communications Policy Act. 
And there are two significant deregulatory measures in this. The first is that it eliminated uh, rate caps that local governments could put over what cable companies could charge. So when a cable company wanted a franchise um, in, to lay wires and to sell services to a local city, they had to negotiate with the city council. And those negotiations could, you know, take on a variety of forms. Um, and there was a lot of going back and forth. Cable industries would make a lot of promises sometimes. Sometimes they delivered, many times they didn't. Uh, one of the, the powers that the, the city council or the local government would really make sure that they have is something about the rate caps or fees that they had to pay to the local government. And so uh, the, the 84 legislation really eliminates some of these rate caps. It's really significant. Mm other thing that they did um, in uh, in this legislation is they streamlined the renewal process to make it easier for cable companies to renew their franchise agreement. So after a certain number of years, they'd have to renegotiate. But they made that so easy that it really made it difficult for the city council or the local government to kind of come back and make certain demands for not adhering to certain services. Uh, so it really facilitated once a company had a a cable franchise that they were going to likely continue it. Um, and and so that's those are the two changes. And so what happens in the aftermath, um, unsurprisingly, rates go up um, and customer service goes down. And that combination uh, really infuriates uh, cable subscribers across the country. So what's interesting is that Clinton, President Bill Clinton and Vice President Gore, the Clinton-Gore administration, they deregulate cable even further, essentially, right? Though I knew they, I know they were not fans of these high rates and bad customer service at first. Exactly. Uh, Al Gore actually makes a name for himself uh, by attacking the cable corporations. Uh, he holds uh, Senate hearings and he goes after people like John Malone, who is the head of TCI, one of the biggest cable companies at the time, uh, really paints them as the big bad monopoly. Um, and this becomes an issue that resonates with people across the country. It's, it's part of how he his political star kept rising because he was really attacking these monopolies, voicing these concerns of consumers who felt, you know, that they they couldn't do anything because they loved their cable TV, but their bill kept going up and they didn't want to part with cable, but their bill kept going up. And so they felt like they were in a bind. Al Gore gave voice to them. But that's really good for the campaign trial that worked really well when you're an aspiring national politician looking at the White House. Um, but when he and Clinton were actually in office, they realized that they needed to work with uh, many of the, these major corporations uh, to pursue their agenda. They wanted to partner uh, with corporations in a variety of their policies. And so he actively goes and, and tries to cultivate a, a working relationship with the cable company. Some people are open to him. Um, others are much more reluctant. But the 1996 Telecommunications Act really frees um, telephone and cable and um, uh, and internet companies to, it allows them to merge and to compete against one another. And so that's really the, the major deregulatory initiative that he and Clinton saw as essential to advancing their policy um, uh, to build the information highway, right? That this is going to be done by private industry. 
We're talking with Catherine Kramer Brownell about the rise of the cable industry and right now about how government helped it along through deregulatory policies. And you, our listeners, are sharing what you remember about cable TV's rise, what you think about the impact that cable TV has had with regard to more viewing options. You're also telling us about streaming services and what you're seeing as similarities or differences with streaming services as well. We're even getting some strategies that people are employing for their streaming today to try to get around issues related to cost and so on. Lawrence writes, for example, currently just in San Francisco with a rabbit ear antenna, you can get 100 channels of network TV shows, including a plethora of content from the Weather Channel to Chinese Central Television, and in many different languages. With some streaming, I have enough content for thousands of years of viewing. Kim writes, I've been streaming exclusively since 2017 when I got a free Fire Stick from Amazon. Since then, I have used Sling, Hulu, and YouTube TV. All include numerous channels which I never watch, just like cable. Hulu also raises their price every year. Soon I will get rid of YouTube TV until the next football season. And Pat writes, isn't it true that cable was more elitist than broadcast? Low-income folks, including people of color, could afford the free broadcast but couldn't afford to take food off of their tables to pay for cable. Take BET, for example. You had to be able to afford to watch the Thrilla in Manila as opposed to just dialing up ABC's wide world of sports. Hmm. How, do you, how do you think about what Pat is saying, Catherine, in terms of elitism in cable uh- or the networks? Yeah. It's 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 an interesting question, and that was really always the argument of broadcasters um, about the threat that pay television posed because it would introduce these economic barriers, and um, and and again, it was such a powerful threat that it really prevented cable from expanding for several decades. And there is something that comes in. Uh, you know, the thriller in Manila was pay TV. It wasn't just the the basic cable, right? It, it was something that they paid beyond that. And so that's something that cable um, uh, companies recognize, that they could have these basic cable packages uh, that had the, the broadcasting stations and perhaps a variety of other cable networks that used advertising as their main source of revenue. Um, but then they could also bring in pay at different levels, uh, pay TV like HBO um, and charge them even more. And so there is this, this sliding scale in terms of what people paid. Um, and th- the more they paid, the more they had access to some to fewer commercials, perhaps, or original content as well. So how did government officials justify deregulating cable as good for the public? Because it would be good for the market and and that it would expand market competition. And so there from the 1970s into the 1980s and um, even more expansive in the 1990s, there is a bipartisan belief that What is good for the market, what will expand competition in the market, um, is good for not just consumers, but citizens. Um, And this is where you see that this earlier notion of the public interest, right, that companies, um, you know, television companies in particular, had a responsibility to fulfill um, and, you know, do some type of programming in in the public interest, even though that's very vaguely defined and problematic in some capacities, as we've talked about, uh, that 
that really fades away. And increasingly, um, and again, I want to stress this is across the political spectrum, both Republicans and Democrats embrace yep. this. And um, increasingly, they see the, the consumer interest as the public interest. So what's good for the consumer, what's good for the marketplace um, is good policy. And you say this really is a significant sort of perspective shift. Maybe we don't appreciate it as much today because it's become so normalized. But this idea that the market interest is the public interest, that consumer interest is the public interest, right? I mean, it is an interesting concept. And and you even talk about how um, how Walter Cronkite was concerned about this just in terms of like, okay, if we're going to cater to what the public wants to watch, then what's the role for the people who are determining what the public needs to know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, of course, this idea about what the public needs to know, it has those connotations of who is determining that, right? And, um, and you know, th- that in and of itself can be elitist, it can be exclusionary, uh, but there is a complete shift away from that. Um, and uh, Mark Fowler, the h- head of the FCC under Ronald Reagan, very famously said, what interests the public is the public interest. And um, and that's really, uh, that's a shift away that there isn't something that people need to know to be informed citizens, but rather what they want to know is really all that we should be giving them. And and that that's a different regulatory mantra that emerges. And it's also a, a different business, uh, particularly in the news business uh, that emerges in the late 80s and into the 1990s. Yeah, I really want to dig into uh, what happens with the news business, because I think that is what a lot of people are very familiar with today. Uh, we're going to go into the break, though, listening to actually a cable TV commercial by the Council for Cable Information. This is from 1985, promoting cable's increase in terms of choice. The day Molly took her first steps, I was at a meeting. Now I don't go to meetings. I go down to meet the bus. I didn't give up a career. I just chose the right one for me. You're the one we want to please. Cable gives the choice to you. The who, what, and when that's right for you. Personal choice. That's what cable TV's about. It lets us decide what's important so we can grow together. And I like that. Cable's right. Because cable's not just more choice. It's your choice. Wow, that is so, so 80s. We're looking at the history of cable TV and its role and shaping our country, our culture, our fragmentation that we're noticing now. Interestingly, 2023 saw some big drops in cable TV subscriptions and the industry that's inspiring the cable cord cutting is the streaming industry. But as Catherine Kramer Brownell points out, the streaming industry is built on the same idea of personalized programming as the cable industry was. We're talking about whether we'll see more of the same after the break. Also, we're asking you, our listeners, what you remember about cable TV's rise, what you think about the plethora of viewing options and the impact that they have had. Are you part of a household that has ended your cable services and moved to streaming? And what are you thinking about that? Are you seeing some issues that uh, cable created that streaming is also now mimicking as well? 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum on Twitter or X, Instagram, or our digital community on Discord. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Catherine Kramer Brownell, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University and author of the book 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. You, our listeners, are sharing your reflections on cable TV, its rise, your memories, and also its impact. Let me go to caller Greg in Oakland. Greg, you're on. Hey, good morning. Um, I wanted to just chime in that I'm an AV technician and engineer. Um, I install entertainment systems in people's homes. And I, at my company um, actually recommends that people not. We, we firewall at the, at the router. We don't um, recommend or, or um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, um, promote any of these products at all. And we actually are discovering that it's becoming our ethos to ask our customers to think really carefully about where they get their media. Um, and I just think it's an interesting shift in the business. And I know we're talking about cable cutting, but I just wanted to let know that, you know, we're actually starting to recommend that people not buy these products as oh. the people who install the media systems to look at them. Um, and I just wanted to get the panel's comment on that. Oh, do you have I'll any take my answer off there. thoughts about that, Catherine? Um, so the products in terms of the the, the particular streaming uh, the cable so- companies, your subscriptions, oh. um, mm-hmm. you know, the things that the things that are, are being sold to us as really a platform for more advertising. Mm-hmm. Um well, and that's really, it's really interesting because, of course, you know, one of the our early arguments for cable is that it would get away from advertising, that it would be cheaper, uh, that even if you're, if you're um, paying for a cable subscription, they argue that that was cheaper than taking your family out to the movie. Um, and so it was an economical decision to get bet- more entertainment uh, at a more affordable and accessible uh, manner. So th- there was a spin, uh, a very similar spin that you see happening with streaming today that, you know, streaming, uh, cutting the cable cord will be more affordable um, and it will be uh, more expansive and and fewer commercials. Uh, But in fact, and so cable really had that same model. Uh, They spun it in similar ways. Uh, But then, of course, once they got um, a a subscriber, they found out that the subscribers were very loyal and that they became really attached to their cable TV. Um, And that's why, you know, having those niche uh, channels meant something because they could have, you know, they didn't know what every subscriber would want, but they knew that if they offered a variety of them, they'd become 
very loyal cable subscribers. And that's where they could raise the rates and then maybe even introduce the advertising as well. Yeah. Stephen writes, one of the ironies is that paid cable TV did not get rid of the commercials. In the 80s, we got our cable for free in Manhattan Beach because the company didn't even bother to check. MTV was the main attraction. Matthew writes, I had the privilege of co-hosting a cable access show called Reality, Mind, and Language in the 80s. Cable providers were required to provide studio facilities and production assistance for anyone who wanted their own show. In Hayward, where we were narrow casting, the facilities were state-of-the-art, and we even had a regular audience. What happened to this mandate for public access? It seems that this scrappy grassroots production sector has withered or died and been replaced by streaming alternatives. You know, with Matthew talking about Reality, Mind, and Language, sounds like a very interesting (laughs) show, but you You know, there were a lot of like shows about cooking and the weather and sports, as you say, and they weren't inherently bad. It wasn't a negative thing to have. People built community around these things, as you say. People felt reflected by some of this programming. But you do, and I think we do, we cannot not talk about how problems arise when this sort of marketplace model and so on is applied to news and politics. And you hold two men responsible for this. You mentioned John Malone earlier, and also Ted Turner. Can, can you mm-hmm. start with Ted Turner? What did he do? <laughs> well, Ted Turner has this idea that maybe people will pay for the news, or, you know, maybe <laughs> the, the news, I should say, that they will subscribe, you know, really want a cable subscription that will give them nonstop news. Uh, this notion of 24-7 news is very different. So not only um, is he charging cable operators to carry CNN, so again, there's this form of subscription, uh, but he's also gambling on this crazy idea that the news can be 24 seven, uh, that it will non, it won't stop. Uh, the first broadcast or not broadcast, actually the first, um, uh, CNN program that came off uh, via the cable dial, um, is they actually end it by saying, and this, this hour is done, but we're not going to stop. <laughs> and it was, it was very awkward because it was so new, uh, in terms of this concept. But he gets politicians to like it because they could potentially get more airtime on CNN, right? If it's about exactly, the news. absolutely, and and that's actually uh, the 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 political brilliance of this type of programming. Mm. Cable operators recognized early on that the more they could get elected officials on the cable dial, uh, the more they could get them to uh, be invested personally in communicating with their constituents or with national television viewers to raise their national profile, uh, the more that they would work to advance its expansion. That if if this benefited them, that they would want it to expand into new cities. Uh, They would want it to grow because it would only help their own individual uh, profile uh, because they could have access to it. They'd have access to bigger and bigger audiences. Um, And so this is a lobbying strategy early on in the cable industry. And that's where CNN is a business calculation, not just that, you know, people, uh, cable operators will, will put it on a dial and charge uh, their, uh, their subscribers the small carriage fee uh, each month, but that it can grow the cable business by giving politicians a stake 
um, in cable programming themselves. And I was so struck by this line that you write that I, I wanted to share that that in the process of having to do this 24-7 news that CNN reshaped the very dish definition of what national news could be, you write it wasn't what journalists thought the public needed to know. It was what consumers wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Let me go to caller Jay in the North Bay. Jay, you're on. Yes. Uh, what I'm wondering was, you say it was what the consumers wanted to see, but then it also opened up the door to people like Alex Jones, who made millions and millions of dollars off from advertising for putting out conspiracy theories mm. and trying to pass them off as some kind of sub news. And <laughs> yeah. so how is that explained? Well, I can take that off the air. Thanks, Jay. You want to talk about John Malone and his role, <laughs> Catherine Kramer Brownell, which I think we'll also get to to Jay's question. Yeah, well, I I think it just goes to this concept that emerges that, again, what the consumer wants, uh, um, that this is really prioritized. Um, And John Malone, um, from the beginning, is... Uh, is this visionary in terms of he understands the technology, but he's also very aware of uh, consumer demands and what what has worked in terms of getting people to subscribe to cable TV. And there's this really interesting conversation that he has uh, with Walter Cronkite in 1998, and and they're they're kind of talking about you know the, the growth of cable, all of these new news outlets uh, that had emerged, um, and. You know, Cronkite, you know, professes his concern that people are not getting the information they need as citizens. And Malone doubles down on this idea that the, the consumer ideal, uh, the consumer notion will prevail and will be beneficial. And he says, you know, that the consumer will demand accuracy and it will demand good information. But in fact, what we see is that that's not always what consumers want. Um, a lot of times they want something that's more entertaining, that perhaps uh, they're, they're, they're drawn to shows that draw on fear and emotion rather than, you know, advancing the information that they need as citizens. Uh, what's good for consumer or consumerism is not always good for um, democracy. And it can be, but not always. <laughs> talk about Malone's relationship with with Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, and so you know, again, um, uh, Malone was aware. Uh, he he watched all of these disruptors uh, come in, and Rupert Murdoch was certainly um, a disruptor. Um, and um, and so he he when he. Robert Murdoch had this idea of Fox News. Um, he he kind of is looking for a cable operator to buy in on um, this concept. Fox News. When Fox comes out, you've got you've got CNN uh, that had been around since 1980. You had MSNBC that had been introduced in the beginning of 1996. And so now um, Murdoch and Roger Ailes have this new product, um, and they're they're trying to get cable operators to buy in on it. And they offer a tremendous amount of money for cable operators to carry their system. So carriage is a is a really is a big challenge for people in 1996. If you have a new cable network, you need to convince cable operators to carry it. And traditionally, a lot of cable operators would buy, uh, would, would pay a fee to these cable networks. It's how they made money. Well, Fox News really flips that on its head, and they offered to pay a substantial amount of money to cable operators to carry Fox News so that they could then really establish themselves on the cable dial. And then that was important down the road to attract advertisers as well. 
Um, and so um, John Malone really um, gives um, uh, Rupert Murdoch carriage uh, for Fox News um, at a key moment when it really looks like they may not be able to actually get their program out to any cable systems. Uh, John Malone steps in because he 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 believed in this notion of a liberal media bias, and he thought that there would be a market for cons a, a more conservative take on the news. And he was mm, right. He was very right. Um, also, I was struck by this historical note that you write about Roger Ailes when he was in the Nixon administration wanting to create something like GOP TV that could really look favorably on the Nixon administration. Yes. And when he says... <laughs> People are lazy with television. You just sit, watch, listen. The thinking is done for you. And so, I mean, that was basically his philosophy on Fox. Do the thinking for your viewers, even though he, you know, the, the advertising is like, we won't tell you what to think, but they really are <laughs> on Fox as well. Yeah. But it is really interesting that, you know, this is a memo that um, uh, Ailes is championing in the Nixon administration. And and it's fascinating to think about how Nixon's idea about the news, about liberal bias and about cable as a competitor to uh, take down uh, this this bias and to combat it, that this really does persist in Ailes, even though he doesn't become, you know, a key figure in the Nixon administration in any capacity. He has these I, this mentality he carries with them. And that's so central to the, the formation and operations of Fox News. Well, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me read some more listener comments that are coming in. Jenny writes, we had to cut our access to broadcast TV due to budget issues. We only have streaming. It feels like broadcast TV is stuck in this nether zone. They want to be streaming and exclusive, but then they broadcast events that are widely culturally important. They only want me to see what they broadcast if I've committed to a monthly cable fee. Why do they make it so hard? I must say, as a woman in my 50s who remembers regular old TV, really miss just being able to turn on the TV and seeing what everyone else is seeing. But I won't pay for something I only rarely tune into. Steve on Discord writes, In our household, we love all the choices from all the services, but not the multi-service streaming fees. We buy two of the streamers, but are looking seriously at cutting to just one. So, Catherine, as streaming major streaming services take over, can we expect more of what cable TV rot? Like, can we expect more narrow casting and potentially more fragmentation from these services? I think so. And I'm struck by the commercial that you played from 1985 <laughs> and, and cable. What, what, what they're selling is that personalized experience that you can get what you're perhaps you're frustrated with these other things but we'll deliver what you need and it'll be personalized just to you and this is uh this is something again that cable introduces this notion of personalized news personalized entertainment personalized um tv uh, that this personalized tv experience and i think that streaming does that even more so and um and because of the you know the the, the metrics in terms of how they're watching your viewing habits and then they have algorithms that can suggest certain things for you uh because of those advances in technology it can become more, much more personalized than cable television ever was and then will we also see the increase in rate hikes, the introduction of commercials in our streaming services more and more. I, I, th I think so, <laughs> because, you know, once people become 
dependent on something for their their information, for their entertainment, perhaps more so, uh, then they they become they rely on it and they might pay okay, a dollar more this year, a dollar more this year. And I think, you know, you'll see uh, what I actually anticipate as well is that there'll be more bundling. Uh, this is something that we've already heard about, right? That you can buy certain uh, a phone and get a subscription to Apple TV for a certain period of time. Um, and I think that businesses will be creative in terms of how they bundle and they come together. Uh, this is also something that cable introduced as well, uh, that you could go with a certain cable operator because you could get a deal um, on and HBO and in all of these other services. And so I think there are a variety of business tactics that cable introduced that streaming companies uh, will con continue to draw on. Yeah, I'm seeing a headline that's saying that the major streaming services, Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, and Max have all announced rate hikes and new advertising policies mm -hmm. for 2024. We were talking earlier about how the public wasn't having it initially with cable and how, you know, Gore ran on that and so on. But you say, quote, there's nary a peep from Americans now about what's happening with streaming. And you see it as a sign of how inured Americans have become to the whims of corporations trying to squeeze their customers. So basically, we've all just accepted this reality. You're helping. I think to. so. I, I think that people just accept that this is how the marketplace works, that this is how the media industries work. And there are so many more choices. Um, uh, it's really an unprecedented amount of choice uh, that we have as consumers. And I think that uh, this this notion that consumer the consumer interest is the public interest has mm -hmm. truly taken root. And, and you know, uh, consumers buy into that, or regulators buy into that, politicians buy into that, and that has just become expected that you will have to deal with the, the whims of the marketplace as, you know, in, in this modern media landscape. If we don't like that, do we have no choice but to accept that inevitability? Is there anything we can do? Do we have agency in this? Yes, it's create. This is because of a particular regulatory policy that was adopted over the course of several decades. And and I always think about this moment right now that we're in. There's so much new technology out there, um, but there's also and a lot of ideas for innovation and um, a lot of, for in terms of business, a lot of questions about government regulation. And there's also a lot of discontent that people have both with our politics and our media. And it takes me back to that moment in the 1970s, uh, the 1960s and 1970s, when there are all sorts of new technologies. And no one could imagine the end of the big three. Uh, but there was so much discontent. And because there are um, new technologies, all of a sudden, new conversations about public policy started to take root. New ideas about a different future for television uh, started to emerge. And I think that, you know, we're at this moment where we can have those conversations. The solutions are not in the past, but perhaps revisiting um, policy, revisiting what we want out of our politics and our media and the connection between the two. Um, it's, we're at a prime moment for that. Well, Catherine Kramer-Bunnell, thank you so much for talking with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Professor Brownell, Kramer Brownell's book is 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences and questions. Thank you, Mark Nieto, for producing today's segment. The Forum team also includes Caroline Smith and Susie Britton, our lead producer, Jennifer Eng, engagement producer, Francesca Fenzi, digital community producer. Our engineers this week are Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Emiko Oda and Annie Burton. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.